This is In Tune, the in-series podcast opening up to you your own in-series opera and more, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. We're recording on November the 15th, just a week before Thanksgiving and two weeks before we open Operetta Wonderland, a holiday celebration of the music of Victor Herbert. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, artistic director of the in-series, and first I have to apologize. It's been a while since our last podcast. It's been a busy time around here, and I'm at present directing and uh, working on a show in Baltimore with the Peabody Conservatory. It's a double bill of Purcell's famous Dido and Aeneas and of a companion piece that I created from his incidental music of the Fairy Queen that uses bits of Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night's Dream. So I've been traveling up to Baltimore every day for several hours of rehearsal in addition to being here in the office and I haven't had the chance to sit down to record a podcast. I'm happy to be doing so now. One of the things I love most about my job, about being an artist, is having the opportunity to learn, having the nature of the game be about learning and not about knowing necessarily. And I have to admit the projects we're working on right now at the end series, Operetta Wonderland and also our family program in Cree Cree, the Mexican singing cricket, this is all repertoire that is new to me and I've been excited to learn more about it. Uh, we open Operetta Wonderland, The Magic of Victor Herbert, in two weeks. It opens on Wednesday, November the 28th at the D.C. Scottish Rite Temple and plays also on Saturday and Sunday that week. December the 1st is uh, Saturday at, at 8 p.m. and again on Sunday at uh, 2 p.m., a matinee there. Uh, Victor Herbert's music is some of the most important music in the American canon. He is the composer of American operetta and in that way is the forefather of the American musical and was revered by uh, Irving Berlin and Gershwin and Jerome Kern. Um, And yet he's not a composer that I have to uh, admit I knew much about. Um, We're lucky here at the in-series that our artistic associate, Brian Shaw, who's directing this show, is an aficionado and a great uh, fan and knows quite a bit about Victor Herbert and has spearheaded this effort for us. Victor Herbert was an Irish composer, uh, born in Ireland, uh, but when he was a young man he went to Stuttgart to study the cello. He's a very fine cellist. Uh, and while he was there, he married, uh, I believe it was Teresa Forster, uh, the soprano, the Wagnerian soprano. And uh, she was granted a contract with the Metropolitan Opera, the then burgeoning Metropolitan Opera, brought her to New York. And in her contract, she stipulated that they also bring her husband, Victor Herbert, as first cellist. Uh, for the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. And he came to America. He was also the conductor of the Pittsburgh Orchestra, put the Pittsburgh Orchestra on the map, and in the meantime wrote hundreds and hundreds of songs, many, many operettas. His output is, um, uh, is humbling when you look at all that he wrote. And he, in that way, carved out what would become the American musical. Now, last week at Casa Italiana, on Tuesday, we were lucky enough to have our director salon, and we enjoyed the participation of the Library of Congress, which sent their musicological scholar on Victor Herbert, on American music, as well as bits of the collection, photographs and documents from the Herbert collection of the Library of Congress. And we also had a scholar of uh, the operettas of John Philip Sousa. Most people don't know that John Philip Sousa was uh, the composer of many 
operettas on the New York stage. Um, and she came to speak about the trajectory of the American musical and the importance of Victor Herbert in that. Our music director for this production is Carlos Rodriguez, and he was at the Salon, um, impressive as always at the piano uh, with the singers of the production, and was able to offer a sampling of, of, of what the evening will entail. Uh, I'm going to play that recording now. You'll hear first our artistic associate, Brian Shaw. He'll introduce the guests, and then each will speak about Victor Herbert, about the American musical, about operetta, the history of operetta, and how it changed, a fascinating discussion about how it changed into American nationalist music. Uh, and finally, you'll hear Carlos Rodriguez chart at the piano with examples sort of the development and folkloric qualities of, uh, of operetta music and particularly the music of Victor Herbert uh, with an example at the end of the whole ensemble from Operetta Wonderland, The Magic of Victor Herbert. Once again, it's playing next weekend, November the 28th through December the 2nd at the DC Scottish Rite Temple on 16th Street. You can call our box office 202-204-7763 or go online to www.inseries.org for more information. Uh, we're doing a partnership with this production with Purple Patch, which is a, one of my favorite restaurants. It's a Filipino restaurant in Mount Pleasant. They're offering a uh, set price menu of $35 that looks absolutely amazing, as well as some signature cocktails to go along with the performances. And then coming up right behind Operetta Wonderland are performances of our family uh, show, which is Cree Cree, the Mexican Singing Cricket. Now, this is also a repertoire that's new to me. It's based on an iconic uh, children's radio show character, um, popular all over uh, the Latin American world, particularly in Mexico. Uh, the show will be in English and Spanish. It's a great chance for children to, to learn some Spanish, to sing along. It's very interactive. It's a fantastic program. We all did already did it earlier this year at the Atlas on H Street. And this program will be at, at here at Source. It's December the 1st and December the 8th at 11 a.m. Source Theater. Um, you can, again, call our box office 202-04-7763 or go online www.inseries.org to find more information. I hope you enjoy the show. I'm an artistic associate here at the In Series. Welcome to our third director's salon of this season for Operetta Wonderland. It's a kind of a new format for us here at the In Series. Those of you that are familiar with these director's salons in the past, we like to bring in now a panel of experts and scholarly folks about the subject of the show. And so this evening, we are lucky enough to have with us my friend and colleague, Miss Tracy Elaine Chesson. Dr. Tracy Elaine Jessam, excuse me, who also happens to be the artistic director of Palace Theatre Collective, which I'm a member of and have worked with here in DC. She's also uh, the associate professor of musical theatre techniques at Point Park University, uh, went to University of Maryland for that PhD, and has been a uh, scholar for early musical theatre uh, between 1880 and World War I throughout that time. So we're lucky to have her here this evening to talk a little bit about operetta. Uh, she's also an associate member of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society. And then we also have over here to my left, Mr. Loris Schissel, uh, who comes to us from Iowa back in the day. And uh, 
is the founding director of Virginia's Grand Military Band and has been a conductor for uh, Cleveland Orchestra's Blossom Festival Band since 1998 for their community concerts there uh, in the public square. And he's also been elected into the American Bandmasters Association, and he himself is a composer and orchestrator, so he has a large catalog for orchestra and symphonic band, jazz ensemble, and has scored for PBS uh, programming and films even. So that's very exciting. But he's here this evening as a Victor Herbert enthusiast and expert, and as a senior musicologist at the Library of Congress here in the Music Division. Uh, also as an authority on Leonard Bernstein, and Aaron Copeland, and Percy Aldridge Granger, and some others. So we're lucky to have him. And then to my right, those of you who are in series regulars, you're familiar with this guy, this little Venezuelan uh, pianist over here, uh, known for his Spanish keyboard repertoire and his flair for opera, who made his Carnegie Hall debut back at 21, as uh, performed here at the Kennedy Center as well as abroad in Austria, and actually just returned from uh, Poland, right, doing some Chopin with uh, Isadora Duncan, uh, commemorating those works. So and he's a graduate of the North Carolina School of the Arts and the University of Maryland as well, and also teaches here in DC at the Levine School. So we're lucky to have all those folks, if you wouldn't mind giving them a round of applause. And I'm gonna go ahead and jump right in here. Uh, how many of you are operetta people? Do you know what operetta is? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, how many of you can hum a Victor Herbert tune for me right now, right off the bat? I see one, two, three, five, of course, the panel. Okay, so we're familiar. We're, we're actually, those of you that aren't familiar with Victor Herbert, um, you'll be excited or maybe annoyed to know that you probably do know a lot of his music, that you'll hear it here in the next couple of months. Uh, during the holiday season, his Babes in Toyland, the March of the Toys, and of course the song Toyland have kind of pervaded into all of that holiday music. And uh, whether, again, whether you like it or not, whether he's in a museum or not in a museum, you know his music and you know the effect that he's had on the American musical theater uh, and the theater in general. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Tracy, can you talk to us a little bit about what operetta is and why it is different from, say, opera and more like the in-series does as well as the standard musical theater nowadays? Well, I think, I mean, it's a good question that has many, many answers to it, obviously. Um, what I love about operetta is that it is beautifully transitional, I call it. Um, a lot of times if you ask somebody to define operetta, what you get is somebody saying, it's light opera. It's something that's less serious or amusing in character. Um, but for me, it's beautifully transitional in the fact that it kind of spans this, this kind of weird liminal space between the highbrow entertainment and the lowbrow entertainment. It kind of sits, situates itself in the middle. And that's really important during the time frame if you think about kind of the economic, um, the economic framework of how the world is working between 1800 and 1900. Uh, we need, all of a sudden, for the first time, we need that middle space. We need that kind of, uh, this cultural product that kind of spans the two. So um, usually what operetta does is it, it you know, is very, very national, yes, but incorporates popular culture, um, and it eventually it tends to transcend uh, class stratification. Um, but it's a chord with different colored strands, usually draped in the national flag. Um, while there, it's possible to draw a beautiful line between um, individual operettas and show how structures change and how music is changing, most of the time what I do when I, when I talk about operetta is we kind of look at it as um, 
part of a national tradition. And what I mean by that is the fact that between 1800 and 1900, um, we have several different kind of operatic forms that are burgeoning in specific um, countries. For example, we have French operetta that kind of comes out of the opera, that grows out of the opera comique, um, and its great star is Jacques Offenbach, um, who is a German-Prussian young man who becomes uh, French when he enters the Paris Conservatory. Um, he introduces to the the operetta the grand love waltzes, the patter songs, the can-can, um, his great show is Orpheus in the Underworld, and that's in 1858. Um, he ends up having to flee to the UK um, during the Franco-Prussian War, and then as his career continues in the UK, it starts this, this need for English operetta as people start saying, hey, I really, really like this stuff. We should do our own, and that kind of starts off the English tradition. He does the same thing in Germany because he is so popular, Offenbach, um, the Germans uh, are getting tired of sending him money, and he, Offenbach realized uh, that he could seek very, very high prices for his work, so German theater managers went looking for the equivalent, and the person that they found was Johann Strauss, um, and Indigo, and, or the Forty Thieves, was one of the very first what we call Viennese operettas, and that's going to become really, really important when we talk about uh, Victor Herbert. Um, <laughs> A lot of times when we talk about the Viennese style, we talk about polka and in the incorporation of kind of national music and national dances. Um, his great, uh, Strauss's great operetta is um, Die Fledermaus, uh, which is in 1874. And let's just right now appreciate the German language. Die Fledermaus, the bat, the flying mouse. I love that. It just makes me so happy. Um, if you go from there, we have its, so we have its own tradition um, in Germany with the Viennese operetta. From there, we kind of go to uh, England, um, and we have English operetta burgeoning during the late Victorian, witty, satiric, tuneful, um, book and lyrics written first, one of the very first times that we start that um, kind of process. Um, and here we have William uh, Gilbert and Arthur Sullivan. And most of what they're doing is they're writing thinly disguised satires on British life, which is, it ties it to that national dialogue that they're having. And that's where kind of operetta really kind of works with nationalism. Um, they actually end up setting um, an English language structure for us where we usually have two love stories, one romantic, one comic. Uh, this, the idea of character development and patter songs, uh, we get all of that in a direct line between Gilbert and Sullivan and kind of what we see in the musical theater today. Um, it's actually their work, HMS Pinafore, um, that kind of sets off the frenzy in the United States. Um, we call this Pinafore mania, and Gerald Boardman, who's one of the first people that writes kind of about opera in America, really calls this one of the most important musicals ever written for American theater. Um, we had other operetta examples. Between the 40s and the 60s, we had a lot of English light opera. We had a lot of imports of Offenbach and Strauss, um, which uh, the managers in the United States would rid of all national material. They were like, this is ridiculous. Uh, we don't need this kind of information. Um, and that's where we kind of meet some of, we start meeting the names of, the, the big names of American operetta, one of which is John Philip Sousa. Sousa actually cuts his teeth conducting 
uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. And so there's this great apocryphal story that's really not true, but it kind of gets the, the point across. Um, it, he was conducting uh, his own orchestration of HMS Pinafore, and Gilbert and Sullivan happened to be in the audience. And Sullivan leaned over to Gilbert and said, I, I think his orchestration is better than mine is. Um, that's his big story that he puts in his, his biography. Um, whether or not it's true is up for debate. Um, but that's where our composers are learning this information. Um, once we get to the point where that kind of pinafore media has come off, um, American operatic is born because we need something that is tied to our national dialogue. So managers actually went to Gilbert and Sullivan and said, what if we Americanized this? What if instead of he is an Englishman, it was he is an American? Though he himself has said it, tis not much to his credit that he's an American. I mean, they have entire, they've, they've gone through and re-lyricked everything. Um, and, and Gilbert said, that will make the show make no sense whatsoever. Um, and so they kind of, you know, walked forward and said, who's going who's gonna to write the great American operettas? Um, basically, this continental opera, all of these strands, what they do is they bring um, musical theater in America a desire um, and an example for story, narrative, structure, um, for more integrated musical plays. Up until this point in America, the only musical theater entertainment that we really had that we could call our own was the minstrel show and vaudeville, which is set up more like Saturday Night Live and doesn't really have that through line um, that we would expect from an operetta. Um, so what we see is kind of this bridge. Op American operetta is basically the bridge between minstrelsy and vaudeville and musical comedy. Um, and, and a lot of this stuff is kind of all happening at the same time. Um, what we see during American operetta is the first kind of steps towards uh, writing a libretto from, front, from beginning to end. Um, a lot of times they still feel like jukebox musicals. Do you know what a jukebox musical is? Like Mamma Mia, where they took all the songs and then they wrote a through line through it and it never works out well, ever. It's really, really awful. Sometimes that's kind of how I feel like American operetta sometimes feels. Until it really gets rolling, it, it really feels like, well, I have a song here, let's, let's make this work. Um, major players in American operetta are Victor Herbert, um, John Philip Sousa, Reginald DeCobin, who writes Robin Hood and uh, Rob Roy, um, and Julian Edwards. One of the big librettists, um, obviously there's, there's so many during this period, the one that, that I gravitate to the most was a man named Harry B. Smith, um, who really just does not get enough credit in musical theater history for his libretto writing. He's one of the first Americans that are writing cohesive integrated musicals, or, or at least trying to do so. Um, but the two top players really are Victor Herbert and John Philip Sousa, and both are incredibly different in sound and style. Obviously, Sousa uses operetta to build his brand as the salesman of Americanism, and he patterns himself more on English operetta since he spent much of his career as a music uh, director doing Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, a lot of what he does is tie everything to popular culture. He's all about selling uh, either American ideology or he's selling products. I'd love to talk to you about Chris and the Wonderful Lamp and something called a electricity ballet, and it, it, it doesn't sound safe. Um, but a lot of what he does is comic opera. 
Um, and that's what kind of sticks on its way to what we know now as musical comedy. Um, Victor Herbert, however, is, is a little different in the fact that he spends his formative musical years in Austria and Germany, and I'll let them kind of talk more about that, but he tends to pattern on that Viennese sound. Um, he's not really trying to be a salesman for that, but he does sell the cultural framework around him. Um, what I love about sometimes in his work, what's embedded into those librettos is, is you know, commentating on the society around him and, and uh, stuff in the newspapers. My favorite is from Babes in Toyland, where they have a song called Dear Beatrice Bearfax. Um, and that, that whole song is built around the fact that there is a, the, the very first gospel, like an advice column. Very first advice column was written by uh, a woman named Miss Beatrice Fairfax, and her tagline was, just give me the bare facts. And so all of a sudden we, we have this song kind of integrated into, you know, into the libretto about Beatrice Fairfax, and we should ask her what she thinks about our relationship, which I thought was really interesting. Um, a lot of times Victor has more believable uh, romantic characters, um, most definitely compared to Mr. Sousa. Um, but his comic characters are also very, very entertaining. Um, and Sousa and Herbert, uh, they, they tend to kind of run this, this musical theater race together. Um, they, they sharpen each other as they go along. You can kind of see them passing ideas back and forth, but they both end up being uh, the anchors of the Copyright Act of 1909. So, um, and trying to give themselves um, copyright protection for recorded music. And uh, they do quite a bit together to make sure that uh, their message uh, gets out. But um, operetta is, is, is such a beautiful form because it, it incorporates what's going on around it. Um, it incorporates um, not only the, the style and the, the individual attention of that per particular composer, but also where they are at that moment. And I always think that that, that shows us so much more about kind of the national dialogue um, then, then we get um, from from most opera, at least. For the layman and for the folks that are here that are are less, how does what 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 are the, the base points? What would you compare operetta with in terms of our modern musical theater today? So when we think about those periods where we have this this area that happened up until Jerome Kern and Showboat, and then we have another period that comes up with when, when we switch to West Side Story. Talk a little bit about what you feel those those intricacies are in terms of where where plots were coming from, where how those characters like is it a is it all stereotypes? Is it all do you know what I'm getting at? If you were to compare it to anything that we see today, it is most like if you want to draw kind of a through line, what you, what you get is is Sondheimian operetta, um, and and Son, especially like Sweeney Todd, that feels more like the musical level of operetta. Um, that we see, but it is not structural level, like theatrical structure level um, in the same ways. A lot of what's happening during the um, American opera time is what we're watching is people uh, finding their feet. It's the, really the first time that we're actually seeing people write narratives and try to put music to it. And that's always going to have its pitfalls. It's, we're always going to trip and fall along the way. Um, a lot of what's happening is we have things interpolated into scripts, kind of willy-nilly by the managers, and so there's not a lot of cohesion there. So, so a lot was, of those... Why does that interpolation happen is also sort of what I'm doing. Like, what I kind of want to bring up, just for the in-series crowd, since we're an opera and more company, a lot of these works in the musical comedy and operetta, the, uh, 
to do operetta and to do Victor Herbert's stuff, especially the stuff that started at the beginning, and uh, several periods within him up until he got to the later years, um, in order to be, you had to be a competent singer and musician in order to pull this stuff off. Um, the music is really wonderful and just, it sings for itself, it's really fantastic. Um, but then later on, as we get into musical comedy and with the influence of vaudeville and everything else, you'll find that there are numbers that are there for a specific performer. When you think of someone that you, who would you, so like, when you think about someone like Jimmy Durante, who made a name for himself and had this personality and his schnoz, of course, um, someone like that was still making a living in vaudeville, um, but then would have, when a producer wanted it, would have, would have been cast in a show and then would have to have material for himself, either written by him or by Victor Herbert, as the case may be. Well, let's go ahead and move on to Victor Herbert and Loris's contribution to this evening. Loris um, has actually been very gracious and they brought us some pieces from uh, the library's Victor Herbert collection. So if you haven't been over to the Library of Congress, do get over there. They've got a huge, robust collection. I understand that uh, Mr. Herbert was, uh, was kind of poked by a, a librarian back in the day and told to send some, uh, send some of his materials out. But I'll let Loris talk about that and kind of give us an overview of, of who Herbert was as an artist and as a man, um, and how that figures into the, the um, I mean, the behemoth that he is within operetta. I mean, we, not so long ago, we did a, a major exhibit of Herbert at the Library of Congress, and uh, we decided to call it the musical worlds of Victor Herbert, because he wore a lot of hats in his life. Um, he was born in Dublin, he was a real Irishman, uh, his grandfather was Samuel Lover, who was a very famous painter, Irish painter, wrote a lot of songs. Um, some of you may have even come across some of his novels, which at one time were very popular. Uh, the Handy Andy stories, or Charles O'Malley, the Irish Dragoon, and that. But he was a, probably one of the most famous kind of artistic people in Ireland, and a great export that way. So he grew up in this house. Um, but he was trained in Germany, so anyone who met him uh, always talked about the, that large man with the Irish brogue with the slight German accent. Um, but he identified completely and entirely as an Irishman. Always wore a green vest all the time, and, uh, and uh, that was very much a part of his personality. He came to America not as a famous man. He married a famous singer. So he came in on her, wouldn't be coat sleeves or shirt tail or whatever, but uh, he married Teresa Forster. And she was a very famous uh, soprano singing uh, Wagner opera roles, Tannhäuser and that. And so she was hired by the Damrosches to come here and sing at the Metropolitan Opera. So she brings her very uh, talented husband cellist at the time. He, studied composition, but his his main contribution to music early in his career was he was a virtuoso cello player, one of the best in the world at that time. So he comes with his wife, auditions, and gets the first chair cello job at the Metropolitan Opera. So, and Herbert was one always to see opportunities before someone else did. So he's playing in the pit and it's very easy for him being a cello virtuoso that way. So at intermission or when things are quiet or in the evenings, 
he decides that uh, he's going to start writing some music that way, mostly concert music. So he's teaching cello at the National Conservatory, which was uh, one of the first large American conservatories in New York City. And the composition teacher there was his good friend Antonin Dvorak. And so Herbert decides to write a cello concerto for himself so that he can expose the public to well, what a great cello player he is. Well, Antonin Dvorak hears this great cello concerto and says, I think I can do that. So we have the Dvorak cello concerto because of Victor Herbert that way. Um, but he starts writing shows, he starts writing musicals, operettas, um, in the early 1890s, I suppose, the first one was called The Gold Bug, which played for about three nights. Um, but he was a quick and fast learner, so he learned from his mistakes that way. And by the time he writes The Wizard of the Nile, that's his, one of his real big hits, initial hits that way. Um, he really takes Broadway by storm, and as you said, both he and John Philip Sousa, Washington, D.C. native, um, are really the two forerunners and, and uh, the most, probably the most popular of the operetta composers at this time. In the 1890s, Sousa has three hit musicals for operettas running on Broadway simultaneously at that time. We think of him as a bandmaster that way. Um, but he has three shows running at the same time. Herbert is in different theaters playing that way. Patrick Sarsfield Gilmore, who's the most famous bandmaster in the, in the United States before Sousa becomes famous that way, dies. And uh, Sousa starts his band literally the next day after, after Patrick Gilmore dies. And uh, not long after that, the membership of the 22nd Regiment, this was Patrick Gilmore's band, hires Victor Herbert to be the conductor of it. Again, an opportunity coming up. Herbert had never conducted a military band in his life. He was a cello player at the time. So he and Sousa are in competition with one another on Broadway as composers of operettas. They're the most two of the most famous bandmasters now in the United States. Herbert actually beat out Sousa to be the official band for the William McKinley inauguration ball here in D.C. over the uh, over there. That's where the National Building Museum over there. And I always mention this sort of conversation they have in the late 1890s. They get together over cigars and drinks, and, and uh, Sousa says to Herbert, why don't you let me take care of the band business, and I'll let you take care of the operetta business, and uh, we'll go our separate ways. They still remain great friends for the rest of their lives. They basically, I can pass this around, because it isn't a, an object. You just light her up. That's a photo of of uh, Victor Herbert on the left, a young composer who worshipped both of those guys, named Irving Berlin, and John Philip Sousa in front of one of the house office buildings because they came down to testify uh, about composers' rights. And they were basically the originators or the founders of a group called ASCAP, which is an organization that uh, uh, protected composers' rights that way. Um, but getting back to, to Herbert, you know, he has this wonderful career of starting out as, as a concert music composer, very popular in that way. To give you an example, this was late in his career just before he died. The same concert that Paul Whiteman premiered the Rhapsody in Blue 
on with his orchestra in Aeolian Hall in 1924. The press was more excited because Victor Herbert had commissioned to write a, a suite of serenades for that same concert on there. And it was Herbert who, uh, at rehearsals, told George Gershwin, he says, you need about a four-bar transition between this theme going into that theme. And, and Gershwin incorporated that. So he, he really comes out of this completely traditional conservatory German training, and he's he's giving George Gershwin pointers about how to write good American jazz that way. Um, you know, as the operetta goes through transition to by the 19 teens, uh, Jerome Kern is writing a new sort of show uh, for the princess, they would call them the princess theater shows, um, which are more intimate and small theater and that, and, and sort of that European model of, a, of, a, of an operetta out of the, the sort of Franz Lehar, Mary Widow, style is sort of on its way out. Um, but Herbert is, is not deterred. By the 1920s, he's writing music for all of the Ziegfeld Follies. Then. So you have this, here again, German trained classical music composer, goes into operetta, goes into concert band. Uh, for about seven years, he was conductor of the Pittsburgh Symphony. He was one of the initial conductors of that. and. Um, the best way I can describe his sort of larger-than-life personality is, is that Andrew Carnegie was one of the big sponsors for the Pittsburgh Symphony. And Herbert didn't much care for Andrew Carnegie. And, and so you have this room, this uh, dinner that they're having in honor of Herbert and the Pittsburgh Symphony just coming back from tour. And someone overhears Andrew Carnegie say, I could sit all night and listen to that beautiful music of Victor Herbert. And someone went over and told Herbert that, and he said, well, that's nice. Victor Herbert, Andrew Carnegie can go to hell. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But, uh, and another interesting facet of his, of his career, his life was his enormous ability to produce huge amounts of work, and lots of times he'd work on three shows at the same time, three operettas at the same time. One of the pictures you'll see over there is him at his standing desk. He did all of his writing standing up, um, but he had sofas around the around his studio there, and on this sofa was the current show he was working on, and then the one he was just starting, and the one he was just finishing up on a different sofa that way. And they always said that if, if the uh, theme of the operetta was Irish, he would drink Irish whiskey while he was writing those things. And then by lunchtime, he'd switch over to the sort of French-style opera, he'd drink wine for that one. Um, and uh, he was a man of large appetites, I guess, if you see the pictures of him. He was, he was again, larger than life in that sense. Um, but he was an inspiration to the younger composers. Irving, Ber Irving Berlin, in his office, had a huge portrait of Victor Herbert, always behind his desk until, until he retired from composing that way. And it was Irving Berlin who couldn't read music, could play the piano very well, but didn't know an F from an F sharp or on the written page. And he asked Herbert, again, this German conservatory trained composer, he said, would you teach me how to write music properly? And Herbert said, hell no, he said, you have a gift that can't be taught. He said, I might teach you all this music theory and this how to compose this way and all that and ruin it for you. You do 
what you do better than all these other trained composers do here. The same with Jerome Kerr, the same with George Gershwin, all of these, the next generation of people that would basically put Herbert out of business in that sense. They all worshipped him as, as a colleague, as a friend, and as a guy who would come and give you all the free advice you, you would want. And there again, it's this Herbert, a man of many hats that way. So he's again a mentor and a teacher then to the next generation. Um, and, and probably, you know, as much loved as he was, and he was by far, at least in the popular music sense, there was not a piano bench in, in America that didn't have lots of Victor Herbert in there. I mean, I got introduced to his music because my grandmother's favorite song was A Kiss in the Dark. And I, she'd play that at the piano and knew, and she thought, what's that? And she said, that's my favorite song, is Kiss in the Dark by Victor Herbert. And you know, when he died, they closed off Fifth Avenue. And the New York police band marched ahead of the parade. And basically, New York shut down. That for Victor Herbert's parade, that's how popular he was. And uh, the newspaper, uh, they had requested that they play the March of the Toys for his funeral. And uh, the conductor of the band said, he said, if, I, if we played the March of the Toys, there wouldn't be a dry eye in all of New York City that way. So, so he's a very special musician. He's also a very special person that way. You know, starting ASCAP, mentoring all these young composers. He was a good guy. We've kind of talked a little bit about how Victor Herbert was this huge figure. So how and why then did his style and operetta in general fade from popularity? Why do you think, um, that's one part of the question. The other part of the question I have is Victor Herbert, um, he was trained classically, uh, but then turned around and went and did popular music. Did led a band, all of that. Did that cause uh, uproar with the classical community? Was that anything? No? I don't think it did. I think you can't have Showboat if you don't have Orange Blossoms or, you know, Wizard of the Nile. I don't think of it as, as Herbert going out of style so much as transitioning, like you said, in the next generation, taking all the good stuff that they can from him and adding themselves that way. Um, because for as earthbreaking as showboat was, it's really very much out of the operetta tradition. You know, you have speaking and the speaking sets up the song and then, you know, a here and now uh, type composer. And he was so prolific that if a, if a show didn't do well, he'd just write another one real quick. Uh, and that one might be better. And what, like, and in a lot of sense, it depended on who was writing the book for him, because he wrote so fast. Sometimes he wasn't, shall we say, judicious in picking always the best books for his show. So you have really good music and a really crappy uh, libretto that goes along with it. Sometimes the lyrics of songs are great and stuff like that. So, so it, it's always hit or miss with with these things. And Sousa had sometimes he hit a home run with the librettos, and sometimes not so hot. All right, and we're going to move towards some music here in a second, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about what our show is, Operetta Wonderland. Um, we really aren't trying to uh, do anything more than celebrate Victor Herbert and who he was. So we've got uh, a collection of songs. Uh, there's no plot involved. Uh, you'll go from one scene, someone's going to be in love with someone else, and then they'll switch right to the next song. So there's nothing along those lines to worry about. But 
we've just really enjoyed uh, relishing what this music is and all it has to offer. Um, so our, even though Herbert, uh, his career spanned a little longer, we, we have titles in ours from I think 1859 all the way to 1922, I think finishing with Orange Blossoms, one of his last bigger hits. Um, and we've got a cast of uh, six wonderful singers who you're about to hear, but I wanted to let Carlos get the chance to talk about his experience a little with this, because um, Carlos has, has a history with traditions, but when you think about the period that Victor Herbert was writing in, but again, between 1859 all the way until the 1920s, that's, and actually I think in terms of the year that he died, I think he died the same year that Puccini did. I think I'm not wrong about that. Um, but the, the span of work that they have and the kind of work that they were doing is so similar and also yet so different. So I'll let Carlos talk a little bit about his experience coming from opera land into operetta land. Well, actually doing a lot of zarzuela, that's actually what would be sort of equivalent to operetta. Um, and uh, is what I'm gonna do, I'm just show you examples of what have talked before because on the one hand, opera is trying to get elements of folk material. If you think of Verdi and Libyan, for example. Actually, can anybody hear me oh, if yeah. I speak like that? Because <laughs> okay. it, may, it may have, um, uh, with the mic in my zone as well. So you have the... popular too, uh, that anybody could see. You hear Mozart. So in this case is Mozart in this in series season, you know, very one hand and Mozart on the other. They were um, innovative and they, they say they want to state something but at the same time they want to be accessible to the audience. Why do I say that? Because it is a route where in, in my, my experience, actually I'm, I'm a newcomer and an, and an enthusiast of Victor Herbert, but it's very similar to the, um, his world has some of that element, some of this, um, you know, if you can, um, uh, sort of that um, accessibility, you know, in various different styles, um, which I'm sure probably learned. Um, and then there's the Viennese style with Strauss, the walls, which, by the way, in terms of revolutionary, what is, you know, even though we think, you know, why is Victor Herbert always, I was thinking about that today, why is he revolutionary in the way that he was a figure in the U.S. where we had all the styles and made it really original, even though there was an influence of what was before and made it into a different genre. And of course, operetta was a way that, as you all said, that the high society, as well as the one that could not afford to go to the opera, could enjoy this music. It was also a way, a revista, a review of musicals, where you could actually do satire, you can actually do political statements in this sort of light-hearted way, but then everybody could understand. 
Now, you have the Viennese style, which is... Sing, 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 sing,
there you have it. I hope that piqued your interest in coming out and seeing Operetta Wonderland, the magic of Victor Herbert. We couldn't be more excited about it. Uh, again, tickets are available. 202-204-7763 is our box office. Or go online to www.inseries.org. Until next time, Rabindranath Tagore tells us civility is the first work of art. Be civil in our own lives and be civil in the art that we make.